Welcome to the Toxic People Detox, a practical guide for finding peace in the midst of toxic people. It's not about changing them. It's about changing how you respond to them and doing so in a productive, healthy way. What's this, Shayla? Two episodes in one week? Are you okay? I realized that when I started this podcast, it was all solo pretty much for 50 episodes or 51 episodes. Having the interviews, and I've I've enjoyed doing it. I've done many of them, and they'll be airing every Monday at 6 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. I realized that some people prefer for me to do things as I always have been, which is I provide a scenario or an issue that someone may be dealing with and giving some practical tips because that is my slogan, a practical guide for finding peace. And I didn't want that to get lost in the interviews. So on Wednesdays, as long as these interviews last, I will be doing things solo. Today, I want to talk about healing from toxic and or narcissistic parents. So these tips can apply to just about any toxic relationship, but specifically I'm talking about toxic parents and I have six tips, but before I talk about that, let's talk about some of the signs that you are dealing with a toxic or narcissistic parent and some people it's going to be obvious. Obviously I'm not talking about physical abuse or sexual abuse. That is a whole different beast right there. And I do have one of my guests talking about dealing with someone like that. Aside from that, what you're looking out for, if you haven't seen it already, number one, belittling or devaluing you. Now, as human beings, we're not perfect. Even the most healthy relationships, you might belittle or devalue someone. It's just part of the human experience. But this is something that goes on constantly, that nothing is ever right with these particular parents, whether you're dealing with the mother or father. A child can make a B is that what's wrong with you? How come you couldn't get an A? Or if you make, you can have five A's and one B and the parent will focus on that B and say, so-and-so over here got all A's and you couldn't. And it doesn't even have to be academics. It could be clothes. Like, why are you wearing that? How come you can't dress like this person? It can be social. How come you're not playing with the other kids? You're not as outgoing. You're not as popular or sports. You can't dribble a ball or throw a football or something like that, like X person over here. Constant belittling, constant comparison. Number two, competition. It's not uncommon for a narcissistic mother to be jealous of her daughter. Let's say the daughter has her own beauty, but the mother cannot handle that. The mother cannot handle anyone thinking her daughter is beautiful. So the mother's like, it looks like you're picking up some weight or you're, you can't fit in that dress anymore. Even if that's not the case, even if the daughter can fit perfectly into that dress, or you might have a father who competes with his son. His son may be a good athlete. So the father, even though he may be past his prime, will try to outcompete with the son. And then, of course, you have the father-daughter dynamic and you have the mother-son dynamic. Either way, there's something the child possesses and the parent is just intimidated by that. And they feel the need to stamp out the competition. Okay, so number three, these type of parents will sabotage their kids. Because of that competition, because of that jealousy, for example, is if the daughter is dating, the mother might sabotage things by saying, well, I'm glad you like my daughter, but you know, she has some issues you might need to look out for. It can drive a wedge between them. They can sabotage friendships. 
They can sabotage the child's career. Now, I've seen that firsthand in my students where mothers come up without really getting into too much detail. I'm thinking, do you know what you're doing to your child? This person was about to go to medical school and it, it, everything, all the doors seem to be opening up, but the mother kind of put that seed of doubt in the student's mind. And now the student is just, I, I don't even know what happened to this person, but this person completely did a 180 and abandoned their career. That was number three. So number four, they try to keep you at what I call a quote unquote safe age. That is, they do not want you to grow up, which kind of is like what happened with that story I just told with the mother sabotaging her child's medical career. If you grow up, they lose their control over you. It's easier to control someone when they're five, not when they're 25 or 45 or 35, whatever. You will never get old enough to be independent in the eyes of these type of parents. I hate the term narcissistic supply, but I understand that's what it is. You're, you, they're not there to control you. They're not there to siphon misery from you so they can feel empowered, okay? The next thing is gaslighting. And what that means is the parent denies the experience. For example, the child might say, and when I say child, I can, I can talk about an adult child too, not just a five-year-old or a six-year-old or whatnot. But they say, you know what? I went to such and such a place. I had a great time. And then the parent might say, no, I don't think you had a good time. No, I, I don't see how you can possibly have a good time in that situation. Or the person might say, I want to pursue this career path. And the parent will say, no, that's not what you want. You don't want to pursue that. Basically denying. And then another thing they do, if they're doing these things, if you try to call them out on it, of course, they're going to turn it back on you and say, well, you're just being too sensitive. Look, I'm just looking out for you. No one knows you better than I do. No one loves you better than I do. And that's what gaslighting is. It's the attempt to remove all responsibility or all evidence of any wrongdoing. Speaking of which, that leads me right into the next one. They refuse to admit they're doing anything wrong. Good luck trying to nail that down. Hey, you said you would pick me up at such and such a time. I'm sitting here waiting for you. I'm like, oh, uh, well, maybe you didn't make it clear where I was supposed to pick you up. You said Second Street, not Second Avenue. So I went to Second Avenue. I mean, my gosh. These people are escape artists. It's amazing how they can weasel their way out of things. Even if you had evidence, if you, <laughs> if you record a conversation and you let them hear the conversation, just watch in amazement as they wiggle their way out of that <laughs> accusation, right? It, it's amazing. I, the reason why I'm laughing because I did this with one of my students. And I was like, <laughs> like you got to be kidding me. The next thing is projecting. I've kind of lost track. So let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Projecting is number seven. Projecting means that they're feeling something. And rather than accept that's what they're feeling, they're saying that you feel this way. Let's say I'm your parent and I say, you're selfish. You're so selfish. What I'm really saying is I'm selfish. You're so ungrateful. What I'm saying is I'm ungrateful. You are a horrible person. What I'm saying is I'm a horrible person. You get it, right? So projecting. The next one, I kind of said this already, but you're never good enough. Nothing you say or do, will, you will never, ever win their approval. And if you do get that approval, it's because it makes them look good. Let's say you're like the valedictorian 
oh, they will own this. And look at my kid, the valedictorian. Check that out. Man, I'm such a good parent. I, I'm, I'm a good influence. But as soon as the, the commencement is over and behind closed doors, well, you know, when you, gave up, when you went up there and gave your valedictorian speech, I didn't like the way you said this. Your subject and verbs didn't agree or blah, 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 blah. And it's like there's always a nitpicking. Never good enough. The last thing is that pent-up animosity. It basically encapsulates everything I've said. These people have this hatred toward themselves, and it ekes its way out toward the victim, toward the child. Again, this can, this can apply to any narcissist, but specifically the parents. The reason why this one is so significant, but because the parents are supposed to be there to protect you, to nurture you, but instead they tear you down. Over years, as I've said, belittling, competition, sabotaging, trying to keep you at that infantile age, gaslighting, refusing to admit you're wrong, one-upmanship. I forgot that one. Not only will they not admit they're wrong, but they got to one-up everything you do, which, which is kind of competition, really. And then having that pent-up animosity that just explodes. It's like you're walking on eggshells around these people, which is probably the most common way of describing this, the relationship. You can't really say what you want to say or do what you want to do without fear of that explosion. It's like the claws come out because this, these people have fragile egos. So now that I've established all that, the title of the episode is how do you heal from all this? Now, don't be deceived by how simple these steps are. They're simple, but they're not easy to follow through with because you just can't get out of a situation like that without some kind of scars. Number one, acknowledge the parent for who he or she is. Now, many people have already come to this point and say, look, my dad's a narcissist. My mom's a narcissist. My uh, father's abusive. My mother's abusive. Whatever the situation, you acknowledge that that is who that person is. Right there, because if you can't acknowledge that, nothing I say from this point on really matters. Number two, acknowledge that the person might not ever change. Whatever's going on with them probably happened long before you were born. And it's not going to go away just because you came into this world that that might have exacerbated the issues. So number two, acknowledge that the person might not ever change. Number three, remove yourself from the need for their validation. That is important. As long as you try to make them happy or appease them, they've got their hooks into you. How can anything change if you're constantly worried about their validation? And I guarantee if you get to this point and you realize that, look, I'm good. I don't need your validation. I don't need you to pat me on the head and say, good girl, good boy, you're a great kid. They will sense that. And it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? How, how come they don't want my validation anymore? And it's going to throw them off kilter because the dynamic, the power dynamic has shifted. Now the ball's in your court because you don't need their emotional support. At that point, they need you more than you need them. Number four, understand their trauma is not yours to inherit. As I said, whatever's going on with them probably happened before you were even born. So it's not your job to try to turn things around. I know on a certain level, because they're your parents, there's that connection. And you may want to help them. You can help them, one of my students said it best, by loving them from a distance. Which brings me to number five, emotional distance. Now, I've known people who just, just cut ties. They Not only are they distanced emotionally, they're distanced physically, and they... Some people said that they haven't talked to their mother or father in you know, X number of years. 
physical distance is a last resort, just cutting people out of your life. I understand the need for it. I was watching a video and there was someone in the comments of the YouTube video that said, I can never understand the need to cut your family out of your life. To which someone responded, said, well, be thankful you're not in a situation where that's an issue for you. But at the very least, even if you can't distance yourself again physically, maybe emotionally. And that just means not taking the bait. If they say, you know what, I don't think you look good in that dress. Just say, "Eh, you're probably right. And go on, go on your business. (laughs) That will probably blow their mind right there. Or, you know, you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah, you're probably right. What's for dinner? And just having that being nonchalant about it, being detached is really the word. They'll probably try to dig in their claws even more so to get a rise out of you. But if you can get to that point, you're on your way. Number six, there's going to be some hurt. Like you look back on it. You might look at other families and say, I wish that my family was as normal. Now, of course, you really know what goes on behind closed doors. But yeah, there's some pretty healthy families out there. If you weren't in that family, You can say, well, you know, I wish I could have been in that family. I wish I could have had a mother who is nurturing or a father who is protective and own the hurt you feel. It's okay to feel that pain. I know we live in a society that says, oh, don't worry about it. Push it down. We don't want to think about it. No, think about it. Acknowledge it. Because how can you heal from it if you won't even acknowledge that you have it? And which brings me to... The final thing, I said six things, didn't I? I put six down here twice. Seven things is seek help. Do I mean therapy or counseling? Probably. It would require a licensed practitioner to really help you through this or a coach. Now, a coach is not a licensed practitioner. Coaching is what I do, right? It's not about trying to diagnose an issue or diagnose trauma and try to recommend ways to deal with that trauma. But for coaching, it's to provide clarity. For example, it's like, I'm not sure if I see what I see. A coach can provide clarity and then help to change perspective. So that's what that means. Speaking of which, today is May the 27th. And this is technically maybe the the second day of summer. So I have between now and about mid-August before school starts up again. I'm I'm pretty much free for the summer. So I'm actually opening up coaching. For those who would like a different perspective, you want to talk to me, you know, we, we talk in 30-minute increments because a lot can happen in 30 minutes. Like I do my podcast in less than 30 minutes, and I say quite a bit in such a short period of time. So if you would like to talk, you would like some guidance, you would like some clarity, I'm here for you. You can click on the link below. It will take you to a page where you can set up a time. Of course, there is a cost. I've gone on record before and saying as a teacher, it is not my job to keep you dependent on me. That is insincere. I don't want people to listen to my podcast for years on end. At some point, I want you to move on and say, you know, I like that Toxic People Detox podcast. It really helped me. I don't need it anymore. And I'm not offended by that. When a student tells me, uh, Dr. Williams, I might need to drop your class. I'm like, hey, do whatever you need to do. If my class isn't working for you, you can find somebody else's class. That's fine. Because that's how ideas grow. That's how thoughts spread. When people are allowed to learn what they learn and move on and take it to someone else. Because that is how I ended up doing this podcast in the first place. Because I learned from my mistakes. I've learned to deal and acknowledge the things I have. I was diagnosed with autism years ago. And it's only now that I'm finally able to own up to it. 
because I didn't want to think that I had that. And that episode is coming, trust me, when I talk about autism and women and how it affects them. All right. So click on the link. Let's talk. Until next time, I wish you peace in the midst of toxic people. Take care.